What is... Look at this! Oh, you're kidding me. Michael, are you going to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! Are you kidding me? Hello and welcome to Camel Clutch Cinema. This is the podcast where we talk about movies that star wrestlers or have wrestling in them. I'm Guy Hutchinson. And I'm Craig Cohen. And we are continuing our discussion of Hitman Hart Wrestling with Shadows. That's right. This is the documentary about the Montreal Screwjob. And if you haven't heard the first part, you got to listen to that first because we're in the middle of it. I know you all remember that we're in the middle of the story here. We've uh, we've gotten part of the way through things. WWF is losing to WCW. Bret Hart's wife is mankind from the waist down. And we're at SummerSlam 1997 at this point in the story. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, WWF is is losing to WCW for the first time ever. That was a big and, deal. Oh, my God, it was. You know, it, you know, Raw was the dominant wrestling show for, you know, since, you know, since it had started in the early 90s. And WCW had finally poached enough talent and, you know, done enough, you know, had enough money to really compete with Vince. And we've talked about how at that time Vince was also sort of fighting for his his life, if you will. Right. For his freedom. Yeah, yeah. This was an interesting time. Yeah. Prior to this, this is what was interesting about Raw. Prior to Monday Night Raw, every year PWI would grade all the shows that were on television, wrestling shows. And it was always whatever WCW or NWA was putting out was the best. And then WWE stuff was at the bottom. And then when Raw came out, it was so innovative that even they had to say, hey, this is this is great. You know, this is this is better than anything Turner's doing. And for many years, not only was WWE number one, which they always had been in terms of total reach, you know, the WCW was a smaller Southern organization. But at this point, WWE had had really blown up and then had kind of, you know, with the Hulk Hogan era and then it kind of faltered with the later period when Hogan went over to WCW. That didn't really it energized them, but not that wasn't the issue. The main issue was Hogan went over there and they were left without any big stars and they didn't have, they were trying Sid. Remember Sid was going to be the next big star. Lex Luger was going to be the next big star. And then at some point Vince realized it doesn't have to be the largest guy we have. It could be guys like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Yeah. Yeah. And we also get talk at this point of the new direction. And this was really the birth of the quote unquote attitude era which is sort of, you know, being talked a lot about now with the whole Attitude Era storyline in uh, WWE 13 with a lot of Attitude Era characters. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of interesting to see the, the birth of the Attitude Era. Uh, you know, there's that famous Vince McMahon promo that they actually show a clip of in this right. where Vince started an episode of Raw, you know, with Vince in front of a, you know, a, a black backdrop saying, you know, the era of the superhero who will tell you to say your prayers and eat your vitamins is definitely passe. Yeah. You know, and it's Vince basically coming out and saying, hey, listen, we're going to be doing some new stuff here. And uh, and hopefully you're on board with it. And, you know, history proves that people were on board with it in a big way. But I got to say, you know, you think about the attitude error and you see some of it here. There was some really strange stuff going on. 
<laughs> no, there was a, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't very good. I got to say about WWE 13, I saw a banner ad for it today. And on the banner ad, the, the, the guys that they chose to put on there was a 20 year old photo of, of the rock, a 20 year old picture of, of stone cold, a picture of the undertaker, a picture of John Cena, a picture of, uh, of, of, uh, of Brock Lesnar and then if you look all the way over, you can see CM Punk, you know, from like the chin down on the cover of it. And I was like, it's so nice that they're pushing the young stars, that yeah. the young stars, they, they have a nice platform to push their talent. Yeah. It's very yeah. nice that they're pushing mostly guys that are retired. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's funny. I've, I've, I've played this game a handful sure. of times now. And there's a, there's a Royal Rumble mode. Mm-hmm. And in the Rumble, there were actually uh, – it was – very reminiscent of the the one year where where Dude Love, Mankind, and and Mick Foley were in it for right. Cactus Jack, uh, which thinking back on it, how did Mick not win that with three tries? Three tries, lost all three of them, and lost but, quick uh, on each time. Yeah, but there was a you know a a, a newer version of Jericho who got eliminated, right. and then a couple minutes later, the Attitude Era or the you know the the Y two J version came out, and I was like. Okay, so we can share characters like that as well. It was it was pretty funny. Really great, yeah. So so um, we get that scene with uh, where Vince wants to be out of the the contract. Vince is you know talking about how the company is in trouble. He wants to Financial get out of it. Peril. Yes. Brett and Julie talk at the table, and he's like, "I think I should call Eric." Did you catch that? Yes, yes, Bischoff. Yeah, Gotta call Bischoff, and then he's and then and then uh, uh, the, he, he's like, "Can we cut this now?" You know, and that's the first time in the movie I think that they talk about cutting the cameras, and yeah. it comes into play a lot later on. Yeah, as this goes on, it, it's funny, especially um, with all the footage post screw job. You know, you'll get scenes where you hear people, but you don't see them because either the camera was covered or the camera was told to be turned off, but they still had audio going. Right. But it's still pretty great that they were able to capture some of this stuff that would have been lost, you know, to people's memories. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, one interesting thing here is, you know, Vince says he's sorry that he signed Brett to a 20 year deal. And since this has come out and, you know, Brett talked about it, Vince has talked about it. Regardless of how this played out in terms of the screw job, Vince ultimately was setting Brett up to really excel in WCW. And w- and watching how WCW completely botched their <laughs> handling of Brett is, is pretty funny. And if you think about it, I mean, Vince really did a great thing for them sending Brett over there the way that they did. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, they – did everything wrong from having Michael Buffer call him Brett the Hitman Clark from doing, you know, terrible angles with him and putting him in the ring with guys who, you know, weren't on his level. It was just across the board. They didn't know what they were doing with him. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really sad. And, and, and you know, that was one of the most exciting things when when Brett made amends with Vince and, you know, <laughs> they worked things out and, and Brett came back. It felt like he, he really had a, a good sort of. Last. Sort of, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, At I least mean, his postscript wasn't a terrible embarrassment in terms of what happened to him. In this yeah. case, it was him not being able to compete on the level, and there was a lot of smoke and mirrors, and you know, uh, uh, a lot of angles to make the matches look halfway decent. Uh, you know, him wrestling uh, Vince rest, wrestling against Brett finally at WrestleMania, and also the match against the Miz, which probably was his last match that he did. Although he did that 
Survivor Series tag match after that, I think. You know, he had yeah. quite a few, you know, little runs where he'd do a little bit here and there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that more as we get to the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And then Brett talks about a real interesting conversation he had with Vince where he says to Vince, talk me into staying. And then Vince says to him, what would you do with you, Brett, um, you know, if, if you could? What would you do? And Brett realizes at that point that he was in limbo. He wasn't a good guy and he wasn't a bad guy. He was really in a, in a really, really tough spot. Mm-hmm. And then we basically get the scene where <laughs> – He's got some Brett. kind of – Brett has some kind of weird machine that's like email, but it's on paper, and it, yes. it he, he puts it into this machine. <laughs> I believe it's called a fax machine, some artifact of the 90s, and he, um, he basically says, I just ended my WWF career, and he says, I've got four more weeks, and that it will be kept a secret, which in yeah. the mid to late 90s you could believe, and of yes. course, nowadays, the minute – Brett sent sent that email or fax, um, it would probably be up on all the dirt sheets. But this was on the dirt sheets. At this time, AOL people did hear, there were rumblings about this, you know, that Brett's contract was was coming to an end. Uh, yeah. People didn't know exactly what was going to happen, whereas today I think there'd be a lot more of that. But oh. it, was, it was interesting. There were also, back then, there were hotlines. People would call up these hotlines and pay a lot of money. You know, they pay two bucks to hear some guy say, okay, another rumor I heard is that there's going to be a match coming up with, with uh, Justin Hawk Bradshaw. That's going to be another <laughs> And match. wasn't that ultimately the reason that Mean Gene left <laughs> WWF for WCW? Was Apparently over- it was so he could do his uh, his silly little uh, little hotline. Hotlines and fax machines, I'm telling you, it's... It's it's things of the past. I actually, when I went to vote this year, I, I got a uh, absentee ballot, and okay. on it it said I could scan it and email it to them, or I could mail it to them, or I could fax it to them. And I was like, fax it to them? Ooh, can I vote for Al Gore or George Bush too if I'm going to fax it? I mean, if I'm going if I'm going back in time, can I can, can I vote in an in an election from the past as well? So you got in the car, you drove down to Staples and asked them if they had a fax machine. <laughs> yeah, and I bought a fax machine, brought it back, set it up, and then I watched it go, I like how Brett mentions, he says, four seconds and my uh, my career, ten seconds and my career went away. Yes, Brett, because you were using a fax machine. That, and he said it like that was so fast. You know, today yeah. it'd be like, well, I'm going to click this button. Okay, my career's gone. <laughs> So we're getting closer and closer to the, the, the Montreal screw job at Survivor Series. You know, we, we see Vince's attitude promo. Then we go to a live event in Detroit, which was, I believe, the, 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 the last event before Survivor yeah. Series. I don't remember if it's the night before or the couple days before. And at this point, it's, it's mentioned that Vince has leaked, that Brett is leaving for the money. And you see footage of fans in the ring giving Brett the finger, calling him a sellout. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it cuts to a really, really weird <laughs> sequence, mainly because it's not explained. Brett's in a limo, and, and right. who's he riding with? He's riding with, with Anvil, <laughs> I believe, and the honky-tonk man. Yeah, who, at this point, I didn't look, but 
Honky Tonk Man wasn't acting. No, he was. He was. Honky okay. Tonk Man was doing commentary on Raw at this time. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And he was he was also promoting. I didn't I don't know exactly this year, but I believe uh, that he was uh, doing what eventually came came up with with bringing out. uh uh, was it was it Double J? Um, but okay. yeah, yeah, Honky Tonk Man was was involved. He was he he was doing commentary on Raw. He was doing a lot of backstage stuff. So yeah, he was on the payroll. And by God, he looks ridiculous here. And then they cut to a guy who I didn't even recognize. Yeah, I don't I mean, know who it was. I thought it might have been Brother Love for a second, and then I was yeah. like, no, it's not. I don't know who that guy is. Yeah, and, and not explained. And that guy um, gets a lot of FaceTime. They they keep the camera on that guy because I guess they thought he was going to say something witty. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it was a tough spot for the cameraman to be in, too. This was actually another really cool scene in the sense that it shows you the behind-the-scenes aspect of this. And Brett gets into the discussion of the the rules for the quote-unquote shoot promos that they would cut against each other. And Brett talks about you know things that Vince and, and HBK um, thought would be good for them to talk about. Right. And Brett expresses his concern saying, Sean's letting me say all this stuff about him. When I don't want him saying shoot right, or, yeah. or bad things about me, Sean was like, was... "Yeah, say whatever you want about me. Why don't you say this about me and say, you yeah. know, say say I'm I'm queer and say yeah. you know all these other hurtful things." And Brett's like, "I don't want you to say anything bad about me." Yeah, yeah. And Brett's I... Brett's a human being. Sean's you know got that wrestler mentality, the the mentality that you know causes Jerry Lawler to say to CM Punk, "Yes, you can come down and make fun of my heart attack on television." Exactly. And that was actually one of the funniest things is, you know, when, when that episode aired, where there were a lot of people online saying, you know, oh, I can't believe that WWE disrespected Jerry like that. Mm-hmm. You're, it's Jerry Lawler. I mean, he's been in the business for what yeah. 40, 40 years. And, you know, he let Eddie Gilbert hit him with a car. Yes. You know I mean? Oh, he yes, let, he did. He, he let M- Michael Cole uh, say things about his, his mother, his right, mother after she right after she was deceased. I mean, and and I think this also speaks to, you know, sort of the divide between certain kinds of wrestlers where they're not able to, you know, sort of, you know, separate the business from their personal life. Yeah. If this was Evan Bourne that CM Punk, you know, if Evan Bourne had had a heart attack and CM Punk did this, I'd say, wow, they, they, you know, they may have conned him into, you know, agreeing to this. That's sad. He's agreeing to this because he has to pay his family. Lawler's very wealthy. He doesn't have to be out there at all. Yeah. You know. I would not be surprised for a second if Lawler came up with all of this. You know, it, it's, you know, and, and a lot of people say, well, it's still in bad taste. They shouldn't have done it. I don't know. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. It, uh, it got me. And I was like, oh, man, I hope, I hope they kill these two guys. I hope that somebody beats yeah. these guys senseless. I hope Ryback comes out right now. I mean, for me, it worked. Uh, I can understand a lot of people say, you know, I know somebody that has, a, and I think we all know people that have had yeah. heart attacks. I just can separate it when I'm watching it that, you know, what I'm watching is, is a TV show and they're making fun of a guy who's standing there and knows they're going to make fun of him and is in on the, is in on the gag. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and Brett was a guy that didn't want to be in on the gag and I can't blame him. Yeah, sure. But HBK yeah. on the other hand, totally fine with it. Yeah. And then we get talk of actually losing to, to HBK. He says he'll lose the title, but not in Montreal. Yeah. And, now this is something that's been discussed a lot and and I'm I'm confused about this. I I don't know why Montreal bothers him and I I really feel that it just bothered him because it was the end of his run. I think I think the Montreal thing 
was was a an excuse Brett put out there, you mm-hmm. know, when really he just didn't want to have to lose the title uh, to Sean, a guy he personally didn't like. But I don't think he I don't think he would have been happy if they were like, oh, Sid's going to come out and beat you. Yeah. you know, Savio Vega is coming out or one of the headbangers. Um, yeah. Who get name dropped at one point? Brett's like, uh, go, play play, like go play with the headbangers. But I, I just think that you know Brett didn't want to lose. You know, which uh, you can debate whether that that should have been his feeling. But I think the Montreal thing—they don't even speak English there. I don't know if Brett can speak French. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how close. I mean, I know it's a big country. That would be like saying Sean can't lose because he's from Texas, can't lose in Maine. You know, yeah. I mean, it's you're talking a geographical distance. There's another thing I wanted to bring up about the limo ride. There's this thing where he's like, you know, he said Stu's dead. That's what he said in a promo. And I, I was just trying to understand how that promo came about and how it really sounded. Because everybody, yeah. even in the car, was like, well, that doesn't even make sense. Stu's yeah, still alive. Yeah. I talked to him earlier. Yeah, and actually, we'll see we'll see Stu in a minute. Um, there was a couple interesting scenes here where, where, you know, Brett says – you know, Vince told me I can leave how I want. And then the screw job is actually foreshadowed by his wife. And then we get footage of um, of, of Brett saying uh, that he can trust Earl Hebner, who mm-hmm. ultimately called for the bell. And, you know, there's been talk over the years about the, the screw job and, and whether it was worked or, you know, who was in on it and who yes. wasn't. And I got to tell you, you know, I mean, the way that it played out in this documentary, I, I mean – was his wife really that keenly aware of things that she would suspect that they would somehow screw Brett over? Yeah. You wonder, there's a couple things I want to say on this. First of all, you wonder how much of that is edited in a way to make things appear however they want it to appear. Good point. Uh, Good point. Number two, I have found that when I talk about wrestling with, with other wrestling fans, you almost never get into an argument. When I see, when I talk about baseball with other baseball fans, yes. you always get in an argument. But when yes. I talk about wrestling, it's one of those things where wrestling fans will always, you know, you like this guy, you like that guy. Nobody really seems to care. You you can go to an event with with your best friend and you can boo and cheer different people the whole night. And, and, and neither of you is going to be mad when you get in the car at the end of the night. But, yeah, you don't have to worry about getting your shirt ripped off yes, or, or beat up going to buy a not, hot dog. Right. You're not going to get mugged as if you're at a Raiders game. Yeah, however, no <laughs> however, I will say the one caveat to that is the only time I've ever seen people get heated is when you either say that this is this was was legit or this was fake to the wrong person. Wrestling fans seem to be very, very intense on their opinions on this particular match. Yeah. And they don't like to, they don't like to hear differing opinions. However, if you backtrack it, if you, you know, you now saw it happen in 1997 at the Survivor Series and you start going back, there's so many clues leading up to this. There's a promo that Brett cuts on Vince where he's saying, you know, you're going to screw me. And, you know, where he's in the ring and the cage and everything. There's a lot of moments that really, you know, just feel like, it just feels like this was a setup. If it wasn't, that's fine. But the the whole idea that this could have been a setup, boy, this helped Vince McMahon. I mean, if you look at this from no other angle, but hey, Brett said to Vince, I want to go over there and make a lot of money. Can you please let me out of my contract? And Vince said, I got an idea that'll make us a whole lot of money and you'll still get your $20 million or whatever. I mean, hey, maybe that didn't happen at all, but yeah. it's really neat to think about. Oh, sure. And this was actually... 
this was the birth of the of the of the Vince character, absolutely, yes. Which they talk about, you know, the fans didn't. A lot of fans didn't know that he ran the company. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, "What? What? Vince, the skinny commentator guy, the little guy that Andre put his hand on his shoulder, that guy." You know, you didn't believe it. You believe Gorilla Monsoon owned the company before you'd believe Vince would. I mean, Vince yes. Vince gets told off by Jesse Ventura every night. You know, this yeah, is not a yeah. guy that that could run things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, as, we, as we talked about on the last episode, like you said, you know, this was really a great thing for for Vince moving forward. And I really think that you can believe that he was setting Brett up to get sent to WCW and was going to be taken care of. Yes. And then, of course, the ball was dropped. Right. Absolutely. So then we have a, a, a scene where Brett's discussing leaving with Stu <laughs> and, they, you know, they talk about respect. And, right. and, you know, you can see that, you know, Brett is very much his father's son and they're very much in agreement on, on the business and how it works. And then we're at the Survivor Series. We have fans in the parking lot before the event. Well, what of what about uh, did we get did we get the scene with Brett in the hotel where he says the lines from the beginning, but he also says what they'd like to do is rape me, rape me. and I, I don't want to let them rape me. Yes, that's the very next scene after we see the fans in the Survivor Series. We do do a jump back to the beginning of the documentary, which is always a very effective tool, right? And, you know, Brett comparing uh, what what happened to him in Montreal to rape is. Is a little. It's a little far. Yes. yes. Yeah. He's like. He's like. You know. It, to me, it would be like blowing my brains out. That's first thing he says, and then later he ratchets it up. He's like, they'd like to rape the hitman in the middle of the ring, and I can't let them rape me. I can't let them rape me. Yeah. Yeah. And I it's mean, not as, like he was wrestling the Sheik. No. No. My God. Imagine old country way in your last match. <laughs> it make you humble. So. <laughs> So, so we go back to the beginning of the of the documentary, basically, and we see yeah. what what happened back then. Yeah, we get, um, and then we're three hours before the match, and sort of we, we we get you know everybody's reaction backstage that this is Brett's last match. But then, know? before yeah. we get to that, we get a commercial for Mastercard. <laughs> okay, they were still doing that one where they're like, uh, you know, a camera, two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh. Flash bulbs, you know, fifty dollars. Uh, you know, uh, carpet, you know, seventy-five dollars. Getting five generations in one picture, priceless. I'll tell you, as effective as that campaign was, and I think it's considered, you know, one of the greatest marketing campaigns ever. Man, did they dr- drive that into the ground? I mean, oh. how long did that run for? It ran. Or is it still going. It might, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it's still going either in some markets or in print or in, you know, in some way. Guaranteed uh, enough. Oh, God, yeah. Well, that's what I remember even more than the actual commercials is all the bad parodies. Because at this time, everybody didn't have software on their computer that could make everything look like a Michael Bay movie. You know, now you can make a a movie with your iPhone that looks you know professional. And so I think the parodies. If this was if this was today, the the parodies would have been awesome. But anyway, we get that commercial. We get a a, a thing where they're saying terrorists targeting America and they they show a lot of things about how a terrorist attack is coming which was really eerie to watch because you know a few years later there was a big one but it was a a show you know investigative reports on A&E which was talking about the coming terrorist attack on America and then you saw Prodigy talking about their internet service and how fast it sends emails 
And no joke, they're saying, we send emails faster than everybody else so you can get on with your life. Because at that time, you would hit send and you had to wait for the email to slowly send. Yes. <laughs> and so the, the commercials would be like the guy was, you know, what they would do is like a guy would be, you know, like the one started out, a guy's having a party and then they back it up to him sending the email, which is, you know, like the emails like, oh, you know, uh, I now have a million dollars for my company or something. And then he parties, but he has to wait for it to go. But they're saying with Prodigy, you don't have to wait for that. My God, I, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. You know, and, you know, 15 years isn't that long ago. But when you talk about the jump in technology, it's a lifetime. Yes. But as you said in the last episode, the jump in the amount of razor blades we have is not substantial enough for Craig Cohen. Sadly, I need a closer shave. You need a Mach 11. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was another commercial at this point telling you to vacation in Alabama where they kept showing beaches in Alabama. It's one of those commercials where you sit there and you go, really? It's like that? That's why Alabama's like, huh? I had no idea. Yeah, and I guess they finally gave up on that sort of tourist initiative. Uh, maybe they did. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I, I skipped through the commercials now. They might be running the same commercial for all I know. Yeah. So we're three hours before the match. We have Sonny's reaction backstage. She's talking mm -hmm. to Julie. Um, she, you know, she talks about how you know weird it's going to be with Brett not being there. Then we get Earl saying that he's going to miss Brett. Mm -hmm. We well, got get footage of what's got to. I, I can't imagine that this wasn't one of the coolest childhood. That a, that a kid could ask for. Oh, my God. We've got footage of Blade in the locker room. And at this point, you know, he's kind of sitting down, you know, you know, in in the, the shower area and, the, you know, they're interviewing him. But there's a lot of footage in this documentary of Blade just yeah. playing no. with other wrestlers. Yeah, there's uh, he, there's footage of him with DOA tossing him back and forth, you know, and, and there's <laughs> the, the scene with Sonny. Yeah. I love that. And Sonny is waiting, you know, uh, around a corner for him to come. And as soon as he turns around the corner, she chases him down the hall, picks him up, turns him upside down. I mean, it's it's awesome. It is awesome yeah. to watch. I, I was that was probably the most jealous I was of anybody in this documentary. The guy I felt the sorriest for was the guy who had to wrestle Stu in the in the basement. <laughs> But yeah. the, uh, the, the person that I really wanted to be was Blade. Because also, did you notice, after the screw job, Blade's like playing with his chewing gum. I mean, for him, he didn't. Yeah. Does he care? He's seen his dad lose before. Yeah. He doesn't know the gravity of any of this. Yeah, he does explain that he, he doesn't understand why his dad's leaving. Right. Uh, and then also, I think at this point, uh, it might have been earlier in the film, but he's got like his own LOD shoulder pads. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. He's living it up. But I can't imagine as as a you know I mean I guess Blade was maybe what seven years old here, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know he's he's got a, a sticker on that basically gives him a carte blanche, yes. and he's you know in the ring wrestling with Shawn Michaels. Oh, oh yeah, uh, Shawn yeah Shawn chases him out of the ring and then they wrestle outside. He he looks like he's a big Shawn Michaels fan, which probably didn't sit well with Dad. Yeah, but it's he funny. looks like he really liked Shawn. Yeah, in Brett's book, he even talks about uh, you know Blade being a a fan of the click um, and, and Shawn Michaels. And it's, it, it is, it is really funny, but uh, well, it, it kind of makes sense. Your dad would be your hero in real life. But if he was on a TV show, the other people on the show would be the more exciting ones to you because you don't see them at home shaving with their Mach three razor. <laughs> yes. There, there also was footage that I really liked towards the beginning of blade with Vince where Vince is like, you know, you're getting so big one day you're going to go up to your dad and be like, Hey dad, look at me. I'm so much bigger than you. Yeah, and and all of the Vince footage in this film, 
um, is from a distance. You, you hear him clear as day, but even that, that footage, um, the cameraman seems like he's a good 10, 15, maybe even 20 feet away. Right. Um, I don't know. Obviously they were giving, uh, they were given, you know, unprecedented access to the WWF, but it seems like certain guys were, were off limits. Um, yeah, or that could have been a, a stylistic choice. Maybe they had yeah. more than one camera there, and they were like, "Hey, we want Vince is the bad guy in our documentary. We want yeah. him to be distant." Yeah. The only time you really see Vince is through footage that actually aired, right? Which the is footage of him choice. up close talking about how Brett screwed Brett. At this point, though, we get to hear how Brett almost schmazed Brett. <laughs> yes. So we we have a discussion of Vince and Brett you know, discussing how the match is going to finish. And, you know, this should have really set alarm bells off in, in Brett's head if, you know, if he was screwed, where, you know, Vince just keeps saying very, very want. unenthusiastically, whatever you want, whatever you want, Brett. <laughs> and they finally decide that there'll be a huge run-in that Brett calls a schmoz. Not only does he call it a schmoz, I don't think I'd ever heard the word schmoz before this. I've now heard it said about 16 times by Bret Hart. Every time they refer to it, he's like, it's just going to be a schmoz. We're going to have a schmoz. I thought we'd have a schmoz. I didn't have to win. We could have had a schmoz. Why didn't we have a schmoz? And can you imagine uh, paying however much it was for the Survivor Series back in 97, probably $45, and you have the last Bret Hart match on a pay-per-view Right. against HBK for the world title, right. and it ends with Anvil and Owen Hart running in and getting Brett disqualified. Yeah, no, it would have been horrible. I, I did watch this pay-per-view live, by the way, oh, and yeah. I I didn't understand that anything had happened out of the ordinary. It just seemed sure. like a weird end to a match. And I did see, you know, that it didn't look like Brett submitted, but I didn't like everybody, you know, I remember everybody was saying, oh, and he did WCW with his hand. I was like, really? And I had to then go back to the tape. And then I was like, oh, yes, clear as day. He does it right at the camera. But I don't know, for whatever reason, it didn't feel out of character at the time watching it. I mean, it was at the end of an event. You know, you, know, you had sat there for three hours. You didn't know anything special was really happening. And you just thought you were seeing a lousy end to a main event. You know, you thought you were seeing some kind of interesting screw job, which this wouldn't have been the first screw job ever if it was fake. You know, I mean, that happened a lot. You know, we had two Earl Hefners at one point screwing Hulk Hogan out of the title. So I just thought this was something like that. And I didn't think much of it. It didn't, you know, it really didn't stand out to me when I saw it. Yeah, yeah. You know, me too. I remember, you know, knowing that, that Brett was going to WCW at that point, and, mm -hmm. and I was always a Bret Hart guy. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, I really can't remember when the, the actual, you know, talk of, you know, a legitimate screw job happened. <laughs> we have footage of Stu sitting in his living room alone and they show the TV with what has to be super remote, uh, superimposed yeah. footage of the, the event. Do you think Stu was at home watching that pay-per-view? I don't think so. I mean, but by the way, if he was, it shows how far Montreal is from Stu's house because Stu liked to go to the events whenever they were nearby. Uh, you always saw him in the crowd being interviewed by like Lord Alfred Hayes, who I remember cut him off once because Stu talked too slow. I also uh, seem to remember once that uh, 
Jerry Lawler said that Stu should be fitted for an orthopedic tuxedo when he was shown in the crowd not able to stand up straight, which is just a horrible Jerry Lawler line. But Jerry was full of them back then. Um, But, yeah, he's in this, uh, like, den. It's a beautiful room. It has a globe. And he's in a really nice-looking chair that's right in the middle of the room. And then there's a a big old TV right in front of him. And it it doesn't look comfortable. I mean, he he looks like a king, you know, in that room. But I... Everything about that is fake to me. That that's definitely shot afterwards. I don't believe that the room would be laid out that way. It just to me, it looked like a it, it looked like an odd layout for the room. It looked like the way that a TV studio, you know, TV people would have set up your house when they came. They'd be like, "Well, put the globe in the window." Put yeah. the that was definitely the the, the 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 only thing that jumped out in, in this documentary is being blatantly set up. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there, there are very few moments in this that appear to be shot and then put together in it. And this, this was one of the sequences that you really felt, you know, it was just footage they captured after the fact of, of him pretending to watch the event. And I guess it's just kind of setting the mode that is, that dad would be watching the event. They also at this, right around this point, they use footage of a different arena with Monday Night Raw. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. So, I mean, they, they were kind of, that's why I think the footage of Stu, they, that also could have been just footage that they shot without any knowledge that they were going to use it at this point, but they wanted to get footage of Stu sitting in a chair, and then they cut it together with the TV in a way that you, you know, it, it may have been something where Stu wasn't supposed to be watching TV in that shot. Maybe he was just supposed to be relaxing, and, you know, they they uh, uh, just used it in that, in that instance. Um, but, yeah, they show the beginning of Monday Night Raw because the people making this don't think it mattered. And... Because the arena that they were shooting at, the uh, they were at the, the Molson Center, I believe, in, in Montreal. And that arena was one of those ones like MSG where they didn't put up the Titantron. They would put, you know, they'd put up the thing in the aisle and they'd come down this, this long center, you know, this long aisle. Mm-hmm. With, with a much smaller, less elaborate entrance. So I guess they were like, hey, we want the bigger entrance with the fireworks. So yeah. they cut in Monday Night Raw and you get to see like Ahmed Johnson wrestling and... It's light in the four. Wash your feet. You know that song. Thorn in your eye was it Thorn in your eye. I'm like typo negative, I think. Yeah. There was also an interesting clip here from a historical perspective. You've got a backstage interview with Vince. Yes. With interviewer Michael Cole. Who is now pretty much the voice of the WWE. And he asks Vince who he thinks will win. And Vince says, I don't know. I I don't know. How would I know that? Skinny Michael Cole with his highlights. Yeah. And his highlights in his hair. Um, And and around this point, they went to a commercial break where they had a Fannie Mae spot, which was all about this woman getting a house she couldn't afford. Oh, no. (laughs) Which is so funny and so sad. But it's like, so she says... She goes, she's on the train with her mom and she, you know, like subway and she's, they get out and she's like, why are we in this neighborhood? And she's like, oh, you'll see. And then she shows her this house and she's like, wow, look at this beautiful house. Why are we at this house? And she's like, you'll see, mom. And then this guy's like, hey, Sharon. She's like, how do you know that guy? And she's like, because I'm his neighbor. I bought this house. And she's like, oh, my God, how could you afford this house? And they're like, Fannie Mae, making home ownership easy for you when you can't afford this house and you'll oh. foreclose on it in about 15 years. Oh, God. Yeah, that's got to be an interesting commercial to watch with the uh, with the, with the knowledge of, of what yes. ended up happening. Yes, but not only that, the next commercial, even better, William Shatner for Web TV. Oh, 
And William right. Shatner says, he goes, he goes, you know, you could watch, you know, one of my shows and they show it like in a picture in picture box on the bottom of the screen. And he's like, well, you surf the web to, to watch, you know, to learn more about me or, or to listen to me sing. And, you know, he goes to all these different websites and then he's like, or you could look at other things, but why would you do that? Yeah, you gotta love it. You you gotta love William Shatner. And it's funny that web TV out of all the, the stuff, you know, the technology that was introduced, um, during these commercials is that web TV might've been an idea that was executed poorly, you know, probably, but now in 2012, you've got this scenario where you have smart TVs mm-hmm. where you can access internet content. Well, yeah, no, but, but web, yeah, but I think the thing about web TV was web TV was designed for people that were afraid to use the computer. Oh, so they yeah, were like, we will dumb it down as dumb as we possibly can. And we'll put it on your TV. And I remember so many people being like, well, then I don't need a computer. And I'm like, would you ever want to do anything other than go on the web? Do you want to maybe, I don't know, type a document of some kind? Yeah. There was nothing else that this that web TV could do other than get you on a really slow internet connection. You know, yes. you couldn't really, I mean, you couldn't really use, you could use the internet as it was at the time well yeah. on your TV, but you couldn't do anything else. And the internet then did not have a lot of videos. If you wanted to see a 10 second video clip, you'd download it overnight and then watch it the next day. I mean, it was not, you know, so it didn't really make sense for it to be on your TV. I did know people that had the web TV, but it, it really was something that thankfully people accepted that they just should get a computer and they went to Hewlett Packard and they got themselves a computer that they could use. Yes. So we're finally back to the program. Uh, we're ramping up to the end here, and we've got uh, Brett heading to the ring. And then we get match highlights, and this is another really cool aspect of the document- documentary. So over these match highlights, you have the the booking decision uh, being cut in over it. So you hear Brett discussing with Pat um, what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and it leads right up to the screw job where, you know, Brett says, Sean will put me in the sharpshooter, or I'll, you know, I'll reverse it. And then, of course, they show Hebner ringing the bell early, and 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 you know, we get the confusion that is the screw job. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, it's very good sequence. Um, I I do want to talk at this point about other screw jobs in WWE oh, history. Cool, cool, yeah, let's do it. There is a very famous one that was before this that's really interesting. This was Fabulous Moolah against Wendy Richter. This was on uh, the twenty fifth of November 1985. And so at this point, Wendy Richter had been champ for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And Mula was was not scheduled to be on the card that night. And, and the, the way I'm telling this is from Wendy Richter's perspective. I've heard her interviewed about this. And this is what she said happened. She was supposed to be wrestling the spider lady. And there was a woman that was doing that gimmick. It was a big woman, wore this costume spider lady and would come out and wrestle. And so Wendy Richter was scheduled to win that match. And she had, she was under contract. She had a lot of time left on her contract, but she kept going after, according to her, she kept going after Vince for more money. She felt she wasn't getting paid what she deserved. Uh, the line that she's quoted as saying to Vince was something along the lines of, you didn't make me, uh, Cindy Lauper made me, uh, so you can't, you can't tell me what to do or you can't F with me or whatever it was. So, uh, so Wendy Richter apparently, according to a lot of people, had gotten too big for her britches, if you will, and wanted, wanted to be cut in on a lot more money than she should have been. And so 
this match happened. She's scheduled to win against the Spider Lady. She gets to the ring. It's not the normal woman. It's a smaller woman, and she recognizes right away by the woman's uh, uh, style that it was Mula. And she had seen Mula backstage, and she didn't like Mula, didn't get along with Mula. She said Mula would try to hurt you in the ring a lot, and she, she didn't trust Mula. And she said that she knew Mula wasn't on the card and she was in the back. So she didn't understand why she was in the ring, but she said she didn't ask the referee. They just went ahead and she had the match and she knew Mula was probably going to try to pin her for the title, you know, shoot and pin her for the title. Yeah. So she said, Mula was a lot older than me. I knew I could get out of any pinning predicament that Mula put me in. So Mula put her in a, like a, a, I think a small package and the referee goes down and and Wendy kicks out almost immediately, and the ref goes, one, two, three. <laughs> and the bell rings, commentary by Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon. They're both confused. They give the title to, uh, to, to Mula. You know, Mula's yelling at the ref. Then she gets into what seems to be a legit fight with Mula, who no-sells all of it. Wendy's hitting <laughs> Mula. Mula's not even looking at her. She just, she like, like Wendy puts her in the corner and starts pummeling her. Mula kind of ducks out of it, no-sells all the punches, and just puts her arms up and holds up the title again. I mean, it was really weird. Wendy said she was furious. She left the arena in her clothes, in her wrestling attire, Went right to the airport with her bag, got changed in the airport bathroom. So, God, that must have been amazing to see. And she said she never came back until she came back for the Hall of Fame. So that was that was the end of her, basically the end of her career. She never was big again after that. So that was the one that preceded this. Let's get to the end of this match, and I'll tell you about some of the ones that, that, uh, that were after this. Okay, so we then cut to Brett backstage, and Brett's very angry. This is after he's basically destroyed the announce area. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they pretty much let Brett sort of just vent, physically right. vent. Um, you know, he, he, he destroys cameras, he destroys monitors, he destroys the, the area, and he goes backstage looking for Brett, who's, who's locked in his office. Right. Vince is locked in his office. Brett's looking for him, you know, and, and, and he wants to, he wants to talk to him. Yeah. And then, uh, he's, he, he's unlacing his boots and Sean comes in and we don't see him, but we hear Sean's voice and Sean's voice is unmistakable. And Brett asks him uh, flat out, Sean, did you know anything about this? And, and he's like, you know, I don't know anything. My hands are clean. My hands are so clean. Look how clean my hands are. <laughs> Which we would learn uh, years not later. True. But not, it, not Sean true. was great at selling oh. that. He, 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 I believed him. I even believed oh. him watching this. Oh yeah. Well, even during the survivor series Excel itself, you know, he, he angrily grabs the belt. Does. Um, he sells he, he it. Yeah. He says that he gave them the belt when he got backstage. He didn't take it to the locker room. He said, I don't want any part of this, but he really did. Yeah. So then we have what it, what has to be one of the most quotable moments for me and you from this. Mm-hmm. You have Ju- Julie, uh, I guess, outside of Vince's office maybe. There's a, yeah, a, 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 a gaggle or a, a, a guard of men, including Triple H, who right. is looking at the floor like he's being uh, you know, yelled at by his school teacher. Yes. He's saying, I didn't know anything about it. (laughs) And Julie says the line, Hunter, God will strike you down for what you've done. She said, what goes around comes around. But you know what? It really didn't. It didn't. Hunter's done very well. He's shown in this. He's carrying HBK's bags. I don't know if you catch that. When they're backstage, he's carrying Sean's bags. He's walking behind Sean carrying all these bags. Because Sean was the big star. He was the guy getting the rub from him. So he was nice enough to carry his bags. I I don't know that Sean carries his bags now, but it's certainly a lot closer to that than than the other way around. 
I mean, uh, Triple H is the second most, the second yeah. or third most powerful person in the WWE behind. God Vince hasn't struck him down yet. And or Stephanie. Um, so then we have uh, off camera, Brett knocks Vince out. Right. Or <laughs> did he? That's the. I want to throw that in for the people that think it's all work. So that way everybody's everybody's happy. So, yeah, Brett uh, punches him, gives him an, an immediate black eye, which I've heard Sonny debate. She has a theory on on this that I, I'm not going to bother to get into. But everybody has a theory. But she says that, you know, that she knows a black eye does not does not show up that quickly. So she believes that there was a there was a pre blackened eye. Oh, wow. Wow. Interesting. Uh, right? Yeah. Um, we get Brett in an empty ring and then we cut to footage of the, um, the JR interview with Vince yeah, where he yeah. says, uh, Brett screwed Brett. And it looks like a pretty good black eye there on this yeah, uh, oh yeah, interview. Yeah. Oh, it looks a lot better than what WWE or at WWF at the time did with makeup. But then you get Brett talking. This is the line I really don't like. He starts talking about how they put a, put a bullet in the back of your head when they're done with you. This is Bruno Sammartino. He's yeah. repeating what Bruno Sammartino said for many years. And it just feels so bitter. It feels yeah. so much that, you know, that you say your dad ran this type of a business. There's, yeah. you know, it just feels wrong to say that Vince is the guy who does this and no one else does this. That, you know, yeah. it, it, it felt like something that at any other point in Brett's life, Brett would have argued against. And because he's upset, this is what he's saying now. Sure. And it's actually, it's it's great that Brett and, and I'm not saying it's wrong, by the oh, way, sure. I'm just saying sure. that it, it feels odd. Yeah, but and this is also a great example because Brett ultimately made amends with Vince. They put out that great uh, Bret Hart DVD. They've since put out a Hart family anthology DVD. Right. They put out the the greatest rivalries DVD. Bunch of and, Hall and Hall of Fame and duck. duck yes. Yeah. And like you said about San Martino. San Martino's a couple of years away from being forgotten by the, you know, the yeah. majority of wrestling fans, which is just really a shame. You gotta, you gotta eventually just, just make amends. Vince is a guy, Vince, the best thing about Vince is that Vince was willing to go out there and not only be made a fool out of in that match at WrestleMania against Brett, yeah. but legitimately almost die in that match. The, the, uh, the new heart foundation of, you know, Bulldog's son and Tyson Kidd almost yeah. kill him with a, with a terrible, you know, like doomsday device type clothesline. Yeah. Yeah. So we see HBK with the midget Bret Hart. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, on the, that following yes. night's Raw? Yeah. Yes, on the following night's Raw, he brought out a, a midget uh, wrestler. Uh, and I know that's not a, a polite term, but that is the term they use in wrestling. Brought out a midget wrestler and and beat him up, put his hand on his head. The the For the next couple weeks, they beat up Owen a lot. And they yeah. also beat up Neidhart. And they did this in a way where like they beat up Neidhart and they spray-painted uh, DX on his back, mm -hmm. uh, just like the NWO thing that was happening around this time. And the concept was, that Neidhart had an option. He could leave at that point or he could come back and have a program, which Shawnee ended up leaving, which was probably not the best idea on his part. Owen, on the other hand, said, you know, I will stick around and got a push because of it. So he, you know, ended up sticking around uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, tragically died uh, there. And so if, had he left, uh, obviously he wouldn't have been there, but also had he called in sick that day or, you know, I mean, you know, there's a, a butterfly effect. A thousand things could have changed that from happening. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it, I think we should talk about, you know, Owen real quick here. Sure. He doesn't get a lot of play in this documentary, but, you know, it, it really is tragic, you know, what happened to Owen. Uh, and sadly, 
you know, his, his, his widow, his wife, um, isn't too keen on, on the WWE. Yeah. She doesn't like when they use his footage in any way in positive light and a negative light. And they have the ability to use it and they have, uh, you know, other people in the family that want it to be used. And I, I guess the thing is she wants to forget the whole thing. Um, whereas his family, kind of wants him to be remembered and they think that's more important. And I, and I guess it's a tough thing. I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to look at from the perspective of, uh, I think like, um, like Julie, she didn't like the business at all. So why would she want him to be remembered for that? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think the biggest takeaway from this is as somebody who, who lived through it, Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you took Bret Hart out of the equation, Owen probably would have been, a much, much, much bigger star than he, oh, he than was, he actually was. I mean, and it's you know it must be really tough to be overshadowed by by an old, older sibling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, you really can't discount how talented Owen was. He, you know, with the exception of you know kicking the leg out of people's legs, <laughs> um, he he cut really great promos, especially when he you know we when he was feuding with Brett, saying he wasn't a nugget, and. Um, him and Brett had some great matches together. Oh, oh, they had some phenomenal matches. The one at WrestleMania 10 is is such a top-notch match, the one that Owen wins. Uh, really, really great. Great wrestler and, uh, you know, a guy that didn't have as much charisma even as his brother, who who also, Brett, you know, was certainly not on the level of Shawn uh, Michaels when it came to charisma. But, but Owen had so much talent, really, really talented guy. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that he might have been the, mm-hmm. yeah, in absolutely. terms of pure wrestling ability, might have been the most talented guy. Whereas I, you know, you know, Brett was probably the most exciting in the ring. Right. Um, of the two but, of them, there there are a lot of other members of the Hart family that were not very, not very talented. There was. Yeah, it's amazing that out of the the, the twelve kids that Stu and Helen had, you know, uh, you know, uh, quite, you know, a bunch of them were girls, but you know, they all that, tried it. <laughs> yes. Well, I got to say, they're probably we we you and I have not seen a lot of Stampede wrestling. Maybe you watch that, you're like, wow, that Keith Hart, he was really phenomenal. But watching today, you know, uh, you were at that pay per view event, right? Yes. The one with uh, why don't you talk about that? Because that is a that that's the one where you really got to showcase the Hart family. Yeah, I think it was Survivor Series '93. I want to say mm-hmm. possibly '94, and. I, and Forgive me for not doing my research, but the the main event was um, basically the Hart family, um, and me and my uncle went to this, and we had tremendous tickets. If you get the if you if you watch the pay per view, we were sitting directly behind uh, the announcers. We were probably four rows back, right? And we were sitting directly behind the Hart family, right? And there's a moment during the the pay per view where Shawn Michaels comes out to taunt the Hart family and Stu and Helen. Um, and clear as day, you can see me on the you paper. see a young, long-haired Craig Cohen, a very youthful, spry Craig Cohen. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm cheering for the heel here. I'm cheering yes. for Michaels, and in I do, front of the in front of the Hart family. Yes, and I do a, a really weird sort of fist <laughs> to finger move. Um, showing my support for Sean. Yes, it's that typical, um, you know, pointing or maybe I'm waving my fist. I'm doing both. It's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. At this point, they wrap up the movie. Brett says his character was murdered, and he's yeah. going home. And then they say now he wrestles at WCW, which seemed to be a mixed message. Uh, obviously, we knew he was going to wrestle again, and he did. Um, obviously, as we've talked about, wasn't 
wonderful chapter of his career to go over there. But he went over to WCW. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened that week in wrestling after this documentary showed on A&E. Oh, you know what? There's one more thing I want to talk about on the documentary. At the end of the documentary, on the TV version, and I don't know if this was on the version you saw, but at the end of the documentary, there's this horrible song. <laughs> Did you hear this? Was this on there or no? I, You know what? I, I You may have stopped it? Yeah. I, uh, no, you, I watched the full credits, but I might have gotten up to, you know, you know, refill my drink or something. I see. But. Well, there's a song that comes on called Pace in the Cage. And it may be, it may not have been on the Netflix version. Because, I mean, it may be something where there's a rights issue for this terrible song. But it's like, she's like, I'm pacing the cage. I'm pacing the cage. It's the worst song ever. They play this song and over top of it. So luckily I didn't have to hear the whole thing. Because over top of it I hear, you can order a video cassette of this program by sending 1995. No, it was like $25 to this address. And then they also um, say coming up next on A&E. And they go through all of, you know, whatever else was on the lineup that night. Yeah, yeah. So that was it. Now let's talk about what was happening. Uh, WCW Starcade was just seven nights after this, just after Christmas. What happened on that card? Yeah, interestingly enough, Bret Hart was not on this card. Oh. He was active in WCW at this time, but um, I guess, I guess um, and Starcade was a pretty big pay-per-view for them, but I do know that, you know, one of the things in Bret's contract was, he, you know, he had a limited schedule. Right. That's what I was going to say. If he, if he has a limited schedule, two days after Christmas probably falls under the I don't want to be there. Yeah, and the main event of this uh, event, main event of this event yes. was Kevin Nash uh, defeating a Goldberg in a no DQ match for the WCW heavyweight title. Interesting. Yeah. A week before this, the WWF held an in your house pay-per-view called rock bottom. Ooh. Uh, and this was a, 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 a pretty big pay-per-view in the sense that mankind defeated the rock for the WWF uh, title. Um, they would go back and forth with that title uh, quite a few times. And then we had Stone Cold beating Undertaker in a Buried Alive match. Forget this, uh, and you probably remember this, for the right to compete in the Royal Rumble match. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. This, this that was that, That's an interesting uh, selling point on the match. This was an interesting time in wrestling. You know, the uh, we kind of glossed over it, but the Kevin, Kevin Nash defeating Goldberg, that was Goldberg's first loss. That was, I think he got stung with a cattle prod or whatever yeah, was, to lose the title. But that was like his first loss ever. And, uh, and then, you know, The Rock getting his own pay-per-view with Rock Bottom. I mean, this was... This was obviously a different world than it was a year earlier when they were filming this documentary. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rock's nowhere to be seen on it. Yeah, and, and I mean, Stone Cold's just coming to in that where it's here. He's wrestling main event against Undertaker, you know, big time. Uh, and, and Mankind, also a guy in the documentary, far bigger by the time that the uh, the documentary aired. Yeah. Did you Did you find anything out there on the Internet? Yeah, you know what? I on a lark, I said, you know what? Let me go to the IMDb and see if anybody's talking about this movie. And we have a thread that there are no replies to, and it's titled "Discipline Plus Old Stew." <laughs> and it goes to, on to say, anyone else find the dungeon part with the screams bellowing throughout the house a bit strange? Also, the audio part where they record some poor guy getting it handed to him, and Stew keeps saying something along the lines of, "I'm paraphrasing here." 
You don't have any discipline. Quickly yeah. followed by the slapping of skin. Right. Before we get any further in this guy's quote, yes, this was apparently British Bulldog recorded this on a uh, on a little tape recorder, and we get to hear it in there because they thought this guy was so pathetic. He, yeah. The daughter's like, he was so pathetic. My dad was just beating him up in the basement. So go on. What else does discipline old stew? What does the line say next in the IMDb? It to me was weird, and I'm sure I'll catch a lot of flack for this post, but it's how I interpreted it. Uh Stu Hart, I think, may have been into homoerotic, sadist, discipline stuff. Sounds crazy, I know, but rewatch those parts and put it together. So once again, the the slapping of skin was not wrestling. I get it. (laughs) I see. Do you want to really uh, quick go back and talk about uh, other famous screw jobs? Sure. Yeah. No, there are a few more, which uh, which I, I do want to get to um, quickly. These these are all ones that were based on this event. So after this event, there was there was a couple little references to it on TV after it kind of washed over. But in March of 2006, Shawn Michaels and Shane McMahon had a match on Saturday night's main event where Vince knocked out the ref. And then Shane got Sean in the sharpshooter, and then Vince screamed at the timekeeper to ring the bell and give the match to Shane. So that was dead on. You know, they were playing (laughs) off this. 2009 breaking point, Undertaker faced CM Punk. And this is a whole convoluted match, but Undertaker wins the match with the Hell's Gate. And then Teddy Long comes out and says, that move was banned. Uh, Straight up tag team match. And then he's like, no, no, okay, no, just restart the match. So they restart the match, and then... um, CM Punk gets him in the Anaconda Vice, and Undertaker doesn't tap, obviously, but immediately the referee calls for the bell, and then they do a whole screw job angle that, you know, does involve Vince McMahon. They bring out the ref, which was, you know, one of the Armstrongs, uh, Scott Armstrong, and they, they play up the whole screw job thing. And then in 2011, CM Punk again involved in a match, this one with John Cena, where John Laurinaitis comes out because you know, they're, they're supposed to be CM Punk's going to leave with the title. Everybody remembered he was, he was, you know, off contract and he had dropped a pipe bomb. And so summer of punk. Yeah, that's right. So CM Punk is going to leave with the title. So Laronitis comes out with, uh, with Vince McMahon and, you know, they stop the match. And, you know, they, uh, uh, Cena gets the STF in and they're like, Oh, ring the bell. And then Cena's like, no, no, I'm not going to win it that way. And so he goes forward to lose the match. And then, you know, they call out Alberto Del Rio to try to cash in. I mean, they, they, they did everything to try to recreate the screw job aspect of it. They played it up big time. And so, yeah, this is something that has not gone away. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely used, uh, by every federation that existed, you know, uh, you know, WCW did their own version of it. TNA's, you know, dabbled in it. It, it seems like the, uh, the most obvious way to go when you want to do a, a hot storyline. So going back to the beginning, to this documentary, which had more wrestling in it than we could have imagined for a wrestling show like this. We usually get movies where we're talking about five minutes of wrestling here and there. This was all wrestling all the time. And looking at it now through the prism of today, looking at this documentary from that period in time, knowing what it spawned, did you tap out to Hitman Hart wrestling with shadows? Okay, this is going to be an interesting answer, but I got to say, watching this as a standalone documentary, I tried to really separate myself from the knowledge that I had going into it and the knowledge that we've all sort of gathered or, got, or gotten over the years since it. I tried to watch it as a, a cold fan 
And I don't really think it works as a documentary that explains things entirely in um, a way that would make a, you know somebody coming in cold understand. Hmm. As somebody who understands, the, you know, you know what happened. Um, it was really it, it's it's a great documentary, and I loved watching it. But I'd almost say that um, the only way I don't tap to this from a recommendation standpoint is if it's part of a, a tag team match where you couple it with um, the WWE greatest rivalries, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart DVD, or the Bret Hart, you know, best there, best there is, best there was, best mm-hmm. there ever will be DVD. Couple it with another one of those, either watching before or after, and you get a better idea of historically what this sure. this this does. But as a standalone documentary, I don't think it, it it's very effective. Uh, but I do have to say that um, if if it's part of a tag team match, I'm but not. But it's tagging. not. It's on its own. So what do you say? What is your verdict on it? Um, I, I I think I have to tap. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I will say that I watched it and I thought it was a lot. Um, a lot worse than I remembered. I had a much higher opinion of this, and I've seen Beyond the Mat more times than this, and I kind of always lumped them together. And this really felt like it was a lower-budget TV production that did that had an amazing thing happen in the midst of a mediocre documentary. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of it, and it's neat to see this time period recreated, but there wasn't a lot in this that I haven't heard a thousand times elsewhere and haven't really, really you know, gotten beat into my head. So, aside from the moments that I cannot live without, like her telling uh, uh, Hunter that God will strike him down, this to me was not the wrestling documentary you need to see. You, uh, you don't have to check this out to understand this event, and I did tap out to Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows on A&E. <laughs> so that's it. Craig Cohen, I appreciate you being with me for these two episodes as we took a look at uh, the first documentary we've covered. Yeah, I think it, I think it, it was very cool to, you know, sort of get uh, away from the, the narrative, you know, cinematic narrative of, you know, a, a regular film. And, and it was a lot of fun, you know, sort of breaking down a documentary. And that's it for this time, and we will see you next time here on Camel Clutch Cinema. Hitman Hard has been brought to you in part by Gateway 2000. I like web TV because I can email pictures of the kids to my mom back in Iowa right through the television. There are some things money can't buy. Hello. Happy holidays, Michael. Elmer, do you know what time it is? If you're not an MCI customer, call 1-800-SUNDAY. Prodigy Internet has fast email. What's the difference between DVD and CD-ROM? Now you can own a video cassette of this program. Call 1-800-423-1212 and you'll receive the program you've just seen for only $24.95 plus shipping and handling. I'm facing the cage.